All right, well tonight, tonight, we are dealing with um, covenant theology versus dispensational theology and we're doing this in this course on interpreting the end times or this eschatology course um, so that you will understand better that there are frameworks of interpreting the Bible that Christians have adopted, which, in a sense, drive their view of the end times, okay? You might think that a lot of people, they just read the Bible and they come to their own assumptions about things, but that is not true, at least half the time. For many people, particularly in the Reformed churches, uh, the fact of the matter is that they subscribe to ways of, of looking at the Bible that, that uh, includes certain approaches to the end times and excludes others. All right. Now, last week we were looking at, or a little bit, at the, uh, the Old Testament. Do you interpret the Old Testament by the New Testament? Um, we were looking at the fact that that whether you choose to interpret the Old Testament prophecies by the second coming of Christ or the first coming of Christ makes a huge difference as to where you end up. All right? And of course, those that, that speak about Christ dying, you put those into the first coming of Christ. That's easy. But the difficulty arises when you go to a text like uh, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, and uh, you go to a place like that and you'll see that if you take it, um, if you take unto us a child is born unto us, a son is given, and you take that literally to an event that happened at the first coming on earth, and then the government will be upon his shoulder and all of that stuff, and you apply that to heaven, do you see? Not to things that happen on the earth, then you're taking a first coming interpretation of the whole passage rather than taking a first coming interpretation of the first part of the passage unto us a son is a child is born a son is given obviously first coming but the rest of it he's not he's not ruling on earth right now so it has to apply to the second coming and that's going to uh, make a big difference as to the way that you interpret Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy like the book of Revelation for example so diving into that a little bit more I want to explain these two systems and some kind of related systems as well uh, on this so this uh, I'm going to try to make this an easy-ish lecture okay but you will have to think you'll have to kind of um, you'll have to sit back and listen to these points of view. All right. The wrong way to approach this is to is to think, well, I wouldn't do it that way. Okay. Just treat it as information. Okay. If you do it that way, then I, I don't think you'll you'll be asking, yeah, but why and all that sort of stuff as much. So let's see how we get on, shall we? All right. Um, 
I'm going to look at dispensational theology first. Dispensational theology, broadly speaking, is what is taught at this church and is what is taught at all of our churches. My church and the uh, the church that you guys go to as well. Okay, so that we're all kind of dispensational churches, all right? What, though, is dispensationalism? Because sometimes you don't hear the word. Dispensationalism says that from Genesis to Revelation, through the history of the Bible, and also going into the future, that God, this is, uh, again, this is a not-to-scale drawing of the original earth, okay? So this is creation. Uh, that we had Eden, okay? Let me use a different colour here. So we had we had Eden, alright? Step one. Didn't last very long. In the Garden of Eden, according to dispensational views, uh, Adam and Eve were innocent, okay? They had not committed a sin. It was possible for them to sin, and we know that they did eventually, but they were innocent in the garden. As soon as they sinned, they were driven out of the garden. So, uh, to a dispensationalist, this innocence can be summed up in a kind of stewardship that they would have had in the garden as innocent human beings. And that stewardship would just be to tend the garden and, and so on and so forth. You know what, what uh, God said in the creation mandate. So this is the first dispensation or stewardship. The word dispensation or stewardship or administration, that's basically what it means, okay? So they had an administration or a stewardship, all right? If you want me to, let me just write the word stewardship down here. And stewardship is a dispensation. So Eden is the first dispensation usually earmarked by dispensationalists. Now, what about after? Well, things changed. Once they fell, they were driven out of Eden. And now, they weren't innocent, they were sinners. And so the next phase, they call usually the dispensation of conscience. Okay? If I've spelled that right. It's hard to spell when you're on a board like that. The dispensation of conscience. I think there should be an N in there somewhere. <laughs> Shouldn't there? Let's put it in there. Is that right? All right. Because they now had a conscience telling them that they were doing things wrong or that were approving them. And if you don't do anything wrong, you don't need a conscience to tell you that you're doing anything wrong. So that's the idea behind that. All right? And that lasted for, uh, well, a long time actually, until um, the time of the flood. So time goes on. Man is supposedly, un- supposedly under this administration of of conscience um, and I, I should have put innocence down here so 
So they're in Eden, but it's it's innocence. So we get to the flood. Okay? So the flood happens and we have our third dispensation. Okay? Now after the flood, God speaks to Noah and he says that uh, he has, well in fact let's, let's look at it. If you look at uh, chapter 9 of Genesis. God is addressing Noah in chapter 9. And he says, uh, verse 5, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Um, so in order to to require the life of another man, you know, murder, in order to prosecute that you need law. Do you see? And in order to have law, you have you have to have an agreement uh, to of how the law is going to be. So you need some kind of government. Do you see that? So this is usually thought of as the dispensation of government. Okay. Then we move on in time get to the time of Abram. Okay? So the fourth dispensation, well, Abram is given a covenant by God. Genesis uh, 12, 13, 15, 17, 22. And uh, this is usually called the dispensation of promise. All right. So you can see as we as we move through time, okay, we're getting different administrations or dispensations. They're being and they're given to different people, okay, not always to everyone. Like this one's only given to Abraham and his seed. Do you see? Not to all of the world's population. Uh, then we move on and we get to. The uh, going down into Egypt and so on, and then the Exodus period, Moses, and of course, so the fifth one is going to be what? Fifth dispensation is going to be law. Okay, the Mosaic law. Do you understand that? That's an introduction uh, of it. Then we get all the way basically to the New Testament era, and Jesus Christ comes and he dies on the cross and rises again. And so we get the dispensation of the church or sometimes called the dispensation of grace. Okay? I'll call it grace here, which is probably what it's most commonly called. And uh, then we move on. And the seventh dispensation is thought of as what, what do we what do we have next? We have 
if you like, the second coming. Okay, so we have the dispensation of the kingdom. Okay, when Christ comes back and reigns again on earth. All right? Now, in this, in this setup, you can see, so I'm going to give you a, an overview and I'm going to give you a, some of the good things and some of the bad things about this, okay? So, in this setup, you can see that there are identifiable things that you can say, yeah, I can see how they came to that understanding there and I can see how they got that from that. Um, and it also kind of takes seriously going through the Bible, do you see? The, the actual story of the, of the Bible. And also, it, uh, with, with this, which hasn't happened yet, obviously it's going to be a pre-millennial system. Okay? It's going to be a pre-millennial system because Christ is going to come back and set up his kingdom on earth. And pre-millennial means Christ is coming back before the millennium. Remember that? Okay, so this is a pre-millennial understanding uh, of things. Okay, uh, it also this this view it tends to do two things, and I think it does them generally very well. The first thing, because it it goes through and tries to identify these different stewardships and so on. And also, in order to identify the stewardships, there are other things that, that uh, come into that. For example, with this one, you have the Noah. Oh dear, not with that one, you don't. Uh, technical problems here at the front. You have the Noahic covenant. Okay. Yeah? And this is, we have the Abrahamic covenant here. Okay, this is the Mosaic covenant. See that? And there are question marks about whether the church is in the new covenant or not. So I'll put new covenant question mark. And then this one, Jesus is coming back to rule as a king, so what covenant is this going to be the fulfillment of? It's not the inauguration of it, like this, but what is this going to be the fulfillment of as far as the kingdom is concerned? Davidic, yes. Okay, so this is Davidic covenant, and we'll put fulfillment because it is different than these, which are the inauguration and the, you know, moving through time of, of those. All of these will be fulfilled here. Alright? So you can see that in order to have this kind of scheme, you have to take these covenants seriously, okay? Uh, which means that uh, dispensationalists, as they read the Bible, they like to say that they take the Bible at face value. Okay? They uh, say that, um, well, there are different ways of, of, of putting it, but uh, they like to, to say that they take the Bible literally or in its uh, plain sense, that they don't spiritualize the Scripture. Okay? Do you understand that? 
in that understanding, because of this covenant here particularly, the Abrahamic covenant, that is given to Abraham and his physical descendants, and they're given, given land, okay, and a particular sort of land in Genesis 15. So that means that there is a distinctive uh, promise for the nation of Israel. Also, this comes into a, uh, effect there also, you see, the Vidic. So, they say there is a, a future for the nation of Israel, which is given in the Old Testament prophets and underlined by the covenants. Which means there must be a future for Israel in the future. Which means that Israel, as a nation, in a geographic setting in the future, must be distinct from the New Testament church. Do you see? So dispensationalists say that if you take the Bible at its face value, then there is a distinctive future of the nation of Israel, and there is also another people of God, the church, which comprises of Gentiles, but also Jews, in this dispensation, okay, in this administration. Didn't do it here, but was here. They say that the church is a new thing, okay, which came about after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, um, as far as the basic reading of Scripture and where it comes out in uh, the last days, this the, the general leaning of dispensational theology, I think, is correct. Okay, so I tend to be what's called a dispensationalist, although I am a reluctant dispensationalist. Okay. Um, one of the issues, okay, about uh, teaching the way that I teach, okay, being the kind of guy that I am, is that you're not supposed to set out, step outside of your box. Okay, if you step outside of your box, it's like, well, well, hold on, that's not that's not our stripe, you know, that's not. You shouldn't be critiquing your own view. Okay, I think that's stupid and dumb. And I think it's terribly unbiblical because these are human systems, okay? They ought to be open to critique and to correction, all right? Even if they get a lot of stuff right, that doesn't mean you just automatically sign up to stuff. Uh, some of the things in the past that dispensationalists like Schofield, for example, C.I. Schofield, uh, I think got wrong and badly wrong is that they taught, for example, that uh, the church was the heavenly people of God and that Israel was the earthly people of God. I think that's nowhere in the Bible. I think that's nonsense. Um, they taught that there was a, dis a distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. They don't do that anymore. But in uh, Matthew's Gospel, you read about the kingdom of heaven in Luke and Mark, you read about the kingdom of God, twice, I think, in John. Actually, another three or four times in Matthew, too. You read about the kingdom of God, and you do in Paul's epistles, too. And they, some of them, earlier on, separated those two things and said they were different. Okay? So they overdid it. Um, but there is a problem here with this, uh, with this criteria. First of all, yeah, you know, I kind of stopped you here and I said, what comes after here? What comes after this? 
And I did that to see if any of you would would uh, catch it. What's missing here? Judgment, yeah, but there's a particular sort. Okay? What about this? The tribulation. You see, if you're going to take the Bible in a sense, at face value, okay? I'm going to use this, they're kind of slippery terms, but but uh, you know what we mean by them, okay? What we mean by them is that when I say this is a whiteboard, I mean this is a whiteboard. That's, you're taking it at face value, all right? Um, and in the reading of, of uh, this, we see in different places in the scriptures... Uh, Jeremiah chapter 30, for example, and Daniel chapter uh, 9, Daniel chapter 12, and uh, some other places in the Old Testament, we read about a coming tribulation, okay? And we read about it also in Matthew 24, and in the book of Revelation. We also read about an antichrist who will be Powerful in that tribulation, yes? And the tribulation is generally thought to be seven years long. Now, most dispensationalists, because they separate Israel from the church, they say that God is now dealing with the church, okay? Israel is still his people, but they must, in this dispensation, they must believe in Jesus Christ and they will be added to the church in this dispensation, okay? Now, people believe that before the tribulation, most dispensationalists believe that the church will be taken out or raptured out of, snatched out of the world. Go to the judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb and all of that. Nice stuff, okay? Well, judgment seat of Christ, not so much. But, <clears throat> and then you've got the tribulation, and tribulation is mainly for Israel. Because when you look at the passages to do with Israel, with uh, tribulation, it's Israel focused. It does involve other nations, but it doesn't speak of the church. Revelation, for example, the first three chapters deal with the church, and then after that, it's, it's different. The, you know, the, the focus changes more on Israel. Chapter 7 of Revelation, remember, that 144,000 of the uh, children of Israel are, are spoken of there. So, if that's the case and there's a rapture here, uh, which one was a dodgy pen? Here we are. So this is rapture, okay? The church is going up. Um, no, it's not. That's a post-trib rapture, Paul. Come on. Uh most dispensationalists believe that the rapture, big R, happens here, before the tribulation. Okay? Some dispensationalists believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. Some believe in a pre-wrath rapture. I'll get into that. Some of them believe in a post-trib rapture, but very few. Most of them believe in a pre-trib rapture. So the church is taken out. If the church is taken out, surely this is a dispensation, isn't it? Surely the stewardship changes. So why hasn't the system got 
a dispensation here. This is certainly as much of a dispensation as any of these. It's longer than that one, okay, by quite a lot, quite a lot. Probably, anyway. So why isn't it included in the system? Is that, are there eight dispensations? People say, okay, 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 so there's eight dispensations. The problem is dispensationalists tend to be airy-fairy on the number of dispensations. They say it doesn't matter how many dispensations there are, really. You know, whether you have four, whether you have five, whether you have six, seven, eight, some dispensationalists have 12 different dispensations. Well, here's the problem. If you can't get your dispensations right, okay, and you don't know what they do, and they can't be delineated very clearly, how do you know that this is the dispensations are really driving theology? It becomes a little arbitrary, do you see? Also, look at these names. Look at them. If I put just wrote them down, okay, innocence, Okay, what does innocence mean? Give me a definition of innocence. What's that? Sinless. Sinless with, or, or yeah, in a, in a, haven't sinned yet. Yeah. Okay? Conscience. Well, you know, when you've done something wrong, okay? So is uh, innocence in the same kind of field, category as conscience? Innocence is you haven't committed some uh, a, a wicked act. Conscience is that you're inside the inside psychologically. You're being told that you have committed a wicked act. Those two are different things. Do you see? What about government? Is government anything like conscience or innocence? No. Do you have to have conscience in order to have government? Of course you do. Yes, of course you do. You have to have law too, don't you? Okay, so uh, are you supposed to, uh, oh, well, I'll, no, wait for a sec for that. Stop, Paul, stop. <laughs> All right, got to make this, this easy. So government, that's, that's human beings setting up a form of legislature and so on, yes? That's a very different thing. It's a different category than innocence or conscience. Okay, whether you've got a legislature which is innocent or guilty, the people in it, that's, that's kind of by the by, isn't it? If they're abiding, abiding by the legislature, that's the thing that's important as far as a government is concerned. What about promise? A promise is very different from any of these things. Law, alright. Law, grace. Okay, kingdom. These things are, are kind of, they're, they're in different semantic fields. They're in different categories. Okay? This is the problem. It's a big problem. Okay? It starts to look more and more arbitrary when you examine it. Especially because, uh, look, what's, what's, what's the focus here in the life of Noah, in the life of Abraham? A dispensation? Do you read about a dispensation anywhere in the Bible? According with these guys? Or do you read about a covenant? You read very much about a covenant, don't you? Not about a dispensation. So why are the dispensations given prominence and the covenants are kind of made to fit in with the dispensation? When you don't read about a dispensation, God tells you about the covenant. 
Surely the covenant should be the thing that's given the emphasis, you see. And by the way, when you put the covenants in here, okay, the covenants are in the same semantic field, in the same field of meaning, okay? So you do have uh, a much less arbitrary uh, focus. Also, that because the covenants, they, dr- they drive the story forward, okay, they basically unify scripture that way. So that's why I call myself a biblical covenantalist. Some of you who've, and now it's a big use of uh, the jaw, but uh, I couldn't think of another term. Divine covenantalist, but then that sounds like I'm saying I'm divine, you see. So that's no good. Um, so, but, it, but, I, but I put the focus on the covenants, do you see? Instead of the dispensations. I think the dispensations are, um, they tend to be arbitrary. They tend to squabble about things they shouldn't be squabbling about. And I'll give you a great example in a second. And uh, it's actually not what the Bible puts the emphasis on. Okay? So, it's an arbitrary system at the end of the day, even though it's got a lot of things right. It really, I think, tends to look like an arbitrary system. Things have been imposed on what the Bible's saying. Now, I said that uh, that uh, it gets um, it, it gets a little crazy, a bit dumb here, and that's because of this, the New Covenant. You see, dispensationalists, although they believe that the church is not found in the, in the Old Testament, they generally, not all of them, not all of them, but generally, they have a real problem with the New Covenant. Because the New Covenant is promised in Jeremiah chapter 31. And there's also this passage, passages, well, particularly Ezekiel 36 and other passages which deal with the New Covenant, Okay. And the new covenant, covenant is focused on Israel in the Old Testament in Jeremiah and Ezekiel as you would expect it to be because they're Jewish prophets. Okay? So, the dispensationalist, in fact, a lot of them, not all of them, but again, but a lot of them will say, ah, because Jeremiah is prophesying to Israel, the church, because it's separate from Israel, cannot be part of the new covenant. Do you see that? Now, here's the problem. You have, have you taken communion recently? This is the blood of the new covenant. That's Jesus, and it's also Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, writing to the Church. Second Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, we are ministers of the new covenant. Sure sounds like Paul thought that the new covenant was part and parcel of what the church must, must enter into. Do you see? So why do they have such a problem with the new covenant? Why do some people, dispensationalists, say the church has no part in the new covenant. That's because they're not thinking about progressive revelation. You see, they've got their system, which is about progressive revelation, but because they've got focused on dispensations, 
It's blinded them because they're thinking about the separation of things. It's blinded them to progressive revelation as far as the new covenant is concerned. Just because Jeremiah talks about the new covenant to Israel in the Old Testament doesn't mean that Jesus and Paul can't talk about the new covenant with the church in the New Testament. It's just added revelation about the new covenant. Now, older dispensationalists like Lewis Berry Schaefer and so on, they saw the problem and they tried to solve it like this. There are two new covenants. Why? Why did they have to go there? Because, again, they couldn't get out of their mind the fact that how can a new covenant be made with the church if it's already been made, being, gonna be made with Israel? They couldn't get that distinction out of the way. Do you see that? Other dispensationalists will say, well, the church participates in the new covenant, but it's really made with Israel. Okay? It's like the church kind of you know, it's like a satellite around the the new covenant, like, you know, just spins around it or something like that or nudges into it or or whatever. Um, I teach, and there are others, Michael Vlack, a friend of mine in, at the Master's Seminary and other people like that, they teach that the church is part and parcel fully in the new covenant. Okay? Um, and we'll we'll talk about that another time. But you, you see, this is basically what dispensational theology is. There is another form of dispensational theology called progressive dispensationalism. Okay, you don't have to make a note of it if you don't want. Not because I want to say that they don't have some good things to say. They do. Just because I'm looking at your faces. Progressive dispensationalists, they tend to say, look, look, you know, this is a little, little bit confusing. Okay, let's kind of just say that there were maybe two dispensations here, two dispensations this way, including eternity. That, that's nice and easy to deal with, to handle. They also, though, like to say uh, that, well, if you read the book of Acts in chapter 2, you know, it really looks as though that... Uh, they're saying that Christ is on David's throne. So if his Christ is on David's throne, then David's throne must have a sense that it, that, uh, it, it means heaven because they believe Christ is on David's throne now. Now, because they're dispensational, they will also say there is a kingdom on earth, so that means that the real David's throne will be on earth in the future. But you see, they've got this kind of strange mix of interpretations. You've got the David's throne that isn't really David's throne, that Christ is on right now, although he doesn't seem to be ruling the way that the Bible says he would rule. And then you've got the future rule. So progressive dispensationalists, they kind of, you know, they muddy the waters a little bit. They also, not all of them, but uh, many of them will tend to say that in this future realm, maybe in the kingdom, but certainly into the new heavens and the new earth, that uh, the church in Israel become the one people of God. Okay? So they kind of merge together in a big blob again. Okay? The one people of God. Which is against what classical dispensationalism teaches. It separates the two. All right. Shall I get rid of this? All right. 
Um, so that's why I call myself a reluctant dispensationalism. Dispensationalist. Do you want to see my system? Of course you do. Even if you don't, I'm going to put it up because you know. Um, <clears throat> so my system. <clears throat> Also, dispensationalists, many dispensationalists like Schofield, Schaefer, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, people like this, they uh, they have covenants in the Garden of Eden and outside the Garden of Eden, but you don't read about any covenants there in the Bible. So, in in squishing in covenants that you can't find in the Bible, they're actually denying their own way of interpreting, literally, aren't they? You see? And they're, they're, if you can do it there, then you surely you can do it everywhere else in the Bible too, which is exactly what the covenant theologians do, which we'll see in a minute. Okay? Um, so dispensationalists have not worked hard enough on their system, I don't think. This is my alternatives. There might be a better one out there. I just couldn't come up with a better one. But, here we are again back in the not to scale model of the original earth and um, what we have is that we have where's my blue so we have a line coming here to the kingdom okay this line is uh, a the line of what I call the creation project. Okay? The creation project. God made this for a reason. Uh, by, uh, through Christ, for Christ, according to Colossians chapter 1. And Christ will in the end reign. Okay? Also, in the kind of in the middle, well, not in the middle, but somewhere here, Christ dies in his own world. Okay, rises again in his own world, comes back and reigns in his own world. Alright? At the end, Christ defeats Satan and delivers the world back up to God the Father. Then you have the new heavens and the new earth. Alright? So that's a project, you see? That's a program that's that, that we're in. All right. So, we have the fall. Um, we'll do it in red because that's a kind of a nice colour for, for the fall. We'll just talk about it like that. So, we have the fall. Okay. I don't think that we can call what happened in the garden a dispensation that drives anything. I notice that there was be, uh, there was before Eden, sorry, before the fall and after the fall. All right, but there's no real dispensation going on there. No, I don't see a stewardship in here that's any different than anywhere else. All right. Then you have um, the flood which is a kind of a major thing to go on. So you have the flood. And you have, after the flood, you have the Noahic covenant. All right? 
The Noahic covenant um, is actually a covenant on the, for the whole planet to keep it basically uniform. Okay? To keep it uniform. There's not going to be another flood again like, th- like that. Um, while heaven and earth are, are there, you know, things are going to basically remain the same. The seasons are going to roll in. Things are going to be predictable. Yes? Uh, this is what makes science possible. Okay? Basically, the, um, the Noahic Covenant does. So what this does, actually, in a sense, is it... Uh, Where's my blue? I've lost my blue. Oh, here. It basically restarts the project. You see? Because the earth is different after the flood than it was before. Do you see that? So now you have a world governed by the new Noahic covenant, not by a dispensation, but by a covenant. The covenant lasts until this earth is done away with. Alright? Now, on this, you have other covenants. The Abrahamic covenant comes along. Okay, the Abrahamic covenant has three basic threads to it. Uh, promise to Abraham's literal descendants, a land for Abraham's literal descendants, and then, through Abraham, blessings for the nations of the world. Don't confuse those three, particularly not the first two with the last one. Okay? Those three things, you'll see them in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Um, Then you have the Mosaic Covenant and other covenants kind of come up around here. You have a covenant with, um, with Phineas in Numbers chapter 25. Okay, that's the priestly covenant. And then you have the Davidic covenant as well. Okay, you know about the Davidic covenant. These are within the time of the Mosaic covenant. Okay. Um, you also have a promise of the new covenant, but, but that's, that's spoken of in the future. Go to Isaiah chapter 42 in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 42. So, what you have here is that you have these covenants operating. Okay, the, the Noahic covenant is the thing that's governing the, the world, okay, and the way that it's operating. The Abrahamic covenant, that's the thing that uh, is given to Israel, but it's still in operation, and uh, uh, you'll, you'll see in a minute that the church also enters into the Abrahamic covenant, one part of it anyway. The Mosaic Covenant is the law that Israel is, is under okay, until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? And even now, if, if they reject Jesus as their Messiah, in a sense, they're still under that law. Okay? Uh, the Priestly Covenant is tied to this covenant, as is the Davidic covenant, but it's given within the time of the Mosaic covenant. Right, now we understand that the Mosaic covenant, this is a, 
this is a unilateral covenant, this is a unilateral covenant, this is a unilateral covenant, this is a unilateral covenant. Unilateral means God made it and entered into it. He's the party to the covenant. He's the one that makes the oath. He's the one who's got to um, bring it to fulfillment. The human parties don't because they don't enter into any oaths to do it. You see that? Abraham was asleep. Phineas wasn't expecting to be told what he was told. Okay, David, is, he wants to build a house. God says, I'm going to build you a house. You see that? But the people did agree, Exodus 24, they did agree to be under this. They took an oath. Because the people did agree to be under this, they broke it because they couldn't keep it, which means that this covenant is broken. It's no good. The book of Hebrews tells you that. It's no good. So this demands what? A new covenant. Do you see? We've got to get rid of that in order to have this. A new covenant which is in Christ. Okay. Look at... Are you, are you following this? Basically. Okay. Look at Isaiah chapter 42. Maybe the lights are going to come on a little bit. I'm going to look at you to see if, if lights come on or, or whether you look as though lights have just hit you. Isaiah chapter 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him... He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He shall bring forth justice for truth. Who's this talking about? Yeah, you're right. Yes. Uh, in his first or second comings, do you think? Not decided yet? Has he brought forth justice? No? Has he established justice in the earth? Verse 4? Uh-huh, see? So you've got to watch it. Sometimes there may be some echoes of the first, but, but this is mainly second. Verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. There's your creation project right there. Who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you... In righteousness, I will hold your hand. Look at this very carefully. I will keep you and give you as a what? Covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles. Okay, you got that? Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. Okay. Now here, what you're going to see here is you're going to see an interplay between the servant who is Messiah and the servant who is sometimes Israel, but it's going to be easy to see uh, where Messiah is. Okay? So let me just read down here. Listen, O coastlands, to me and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. That should remind you of the book of Revelation. Okay? In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. 
in his quiver he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord, and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Who's this talking about? You don't know who this is talking about? Who's going to bring back Jacob to God? Jesus is. I mean, the, yeah, the Messiah is. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servants to raise up the tribes of Jacob, that's Israel, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. All right. Think of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay. In the Abrahamic covenant, there's a promise of Abraham's seed and blessings for Israel in the land. Yes. There is also a promise for through you, Abraham, All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, Jesus, of course, is the promised one of Abraham, yes? Do you see that? So this is just tying into the Abrahamic covenant. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, look at that word, I have helped you, I will preserve you and give you as a covenant covenant to the people, to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, and so on and so forth. Twice in the book of Isaiah, the Messiah is called a covenant. Did you see that? Twice he is called a covenant. All right. Go to the book of Hebrews. Go to the book of Hebrews. And chapter 9. Hebrews 9. Let's go from verse 11. Listen carefully. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. The high priest with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve 
the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death. Whose? His. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. What's the first covenant? No, no. What's the first covenant here as far as Hebrews? It's going to be the Mosaic because that's the one that's going to be taken away. Do you see? Uh, The context will give you that. I just had to uh, cut to this. That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now look at this. This is where it gets dodgy. For where there is a... What's your translation got? Testament. There must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, and so on and so forth. Okay, why does it switch from covenant to testament there? The Greek word is diatheke all the way through the book of Hebrews. And they only switch it to testament right there in those two verses. He's been talking about covenant, 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 covenant all the time and all of a sudden they translate the word to testament. Why do they do that? They do it because of a an assumption that in the time of the first century, first century Israel, they had the same understanding of a testament and a testator as they did under uh, English law. Okay? They didn't. They didn't. You know this from the story of the prodigal son. From the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son asked for what? His inheritance. Well, he couldn't have it until his father died, could he? Under a testament. But under a, you know, under the arrangements and the understanding of things back then, a testament back then, they could. Okay? This is not, he's not talking about a testament here, he's talking about a covenant. Okay? That word should be covenant. And it's not just me that says that, by the way, as many uh, scholars now are showing this. And the New Americans calls it covenant. Yes, it does. Correctly. Okay? Now, let's think. If this is now not a testament, but a covenant, we've already seen that he's the high priest, that he mediates the new covenant, okay, through his own blood. Okay, what normally mediated a covenant through its blood? What did you do? Sacrificed an animal. Okay? Sacrificed an animal. Who's the animal? It is the Lamb of God, yes. Who's the animal? Jesus. Jesus is the covenant. Do you see? Just as Isaiah said, I will make you a covenant. Jesus is the covenant. Now, if Jesus is the covenant, okay, that means that if anyone is going to get to the kingdom, if anyone is going to get saved, whether they're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, they have to go through Jesus. All right? 
They don't earn it. Now, sure, in the Old Testament, um, they didn't know about Jesus of Nazareth, but the merits of Christ's sacrifice is applied to them. The merits of the new covenant is applied to them. His blood, yes? So, it is no problem for, as far as salvation is concerned, no problem for Israel in the future to be under the new covenant and the church now to be under the new covenant. Both have to trust in Jesus, which is the same as trusting in the new covenant. Do you see that? But the new covenant has does something else because uh, all of these covenants here go through the new covenant who is Jesus, and they come out and are interpreting, interpreted literally, but now, because sin has been done away with, these unilateral covenants that can now be fulfilled literally on Israel and on anyone to whom they are given. Do you see that? Jesus is what makes the difference. He cleans everybody up so that they can uh, meet the fulfillments. Otherwise, these would never get fulfilled. And also ensures the, that these are literally fulfilled because covenants must mean what they say. Alright? You can't twist and bend covenants. Alright? So, this is basically my, my view and notice there's no dispensations. Not because I don't think there are dispensations, just that dispensations aren't important to this model. This is a much cleaner, much more easy model and it's much more biblical. You can, you can track it through this and that the, the basic idea is God's creation project Jesus gets the glory he die, He makes the world he dies in the world he rises in the world he comes back to the world and reigns in the world so this is very Christological in its outlook okay alright so this is that's biblical covenantalism and my understanding of it alright covenant theology folks now we're entering into some fun. All right. This is what you've been waiting for. You want a, a minute's breather? Or are you okay with this? You can, you can have a breather if you want. All right. Let's go for it. What is covenant theology? Covenant theology is the way of Understanding of the Bible that is practiced by um, basically Reformed theology. R.C. Sproul says Reformed theology is covenant theology. That means Presbyterians, uh, Reformed Baptists, uh, the Dutch Reformed, Calvinists and so on, they're all uh, covenant theologians. Anglicans, if, who follow the 39 articles, are covenant theologians. Alright? So that means a lot of Reformation and post-Reformation denominations are, are covenant theologians. What basically does covenant theology teach? Alright. I'm going to read some covenant theologians so that you can get an idea, and then I'll kind of dry, draw up here what they believe. I, I, I will put the world here. I had it here, but I can't put it here in covenant theology. I have to put it here. Okay, I can't put it at the start of things because they started off 
here in eternity. <clears throat> All right. This is a book called Sacred Bond, Covenant Theology Explored by Michael G. Brown and Zach Keel. Uh, it is very well endorsed. It is reckoned by many people to be the best introduction to covenant theology. Okay? So, I have many, many other books on covenant theology, but um, I would say this is probably the best primer, the best, well, it's no more than the primer, it's the best introduction to covenant theology. So, just, you know, I, don't, I never want to misrepresent views that I disagree with. Uh, so, uh, let's try and find out what it is that they believe. Um, <clears throat> let's go to, they talk about how to define a covenant. And then they talk about... Um, different uh, approaches. Here's one quote, page 18. God's purpose in history is to govern his kingdom of creation and bring forth his holy kingdom. His covenants, therefore, are the way that God administers his kingdom. Now, that's basically what I've just said there, isn't it? So, good. Maybe they believe what I've just said and we can all go, absolutely not. Their view is very different than mine. For example, I'm going to keep quoting here. As God brings forth his redemptive kingdom, so they're focused on, they're going to be focused on redemption, on salvation. From Genesis 3.15, he administers his kingdom through the covenant of grace and its different administrations. The Mosaic covenant is the constitution of the Israelite theocracy. The new covenant is the constitution for the church, the kingdom of heaven on earth. Yeah, I know. You see, you're thinking, what? Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Did I hear them right? Did I hear that the Mosaic covenant is for Old Testament Israel, but the new covenant is not for Israel, it's now for the church. Okay? Now, you can see where this was going to go, yeah? Where this is going to go is that God's all through with the nation of Israel, okay? Um, talked about the covenant of grace. I'm going to talk about the covenant of grace in a minute. Uh, they do say this. They say that uh, covenant theology is the Bible's prescribed method of helping us to, under, to interpret the scriptures properly. It's the Bible's prescribed method. Okay? It's the Bible's prescribed method. Okay, if it's the Bible's prescribed method, we're going to be able to see it easily in the Bible. Are we not? Okay, here's the first covenant. The covenant of redemption. Okay? You've all heard of that, yes? And the covenant of redemption was made in eternity between the different persons of the Trinity. What is the covenant of redemption, they ask, page 24. 
the covenant of redemption is the first of three overarching covenants in redemptive history. Three overarching covenants. Namely, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. You ever heard of those before? You ever read about them in the Bible? But according to what he's just said, the, this is the Bible's way of interpreting itself. Okay? There are, of course, more covenants in Scripture, he says, such as the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, and so on. You've heard about those? Okay. As we will learn in the subsequent chapters of this book, however, these are subsets of the three overarching covenants. Okay, so, we, we can find the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant, the priestly covenant, the Davidic covenant. We can find these very clearly in the Bible. But those aren't the covenants that they're mainly focused on. There are more important overarching covenants which are more important to them and to their system and through which you've got to understand the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and so on, yes? Is that basically um, what he's saying? It is basically what he's saying. <laughs> sure you. <laughs> um, so, the covenant of redemption is unique for... Uh, oh, uh, well... Uh, the first overarching covenant, he says, uh, or they say, page 24 is a covenant of redemption. And uh, he says, without it there would be no election, no incarnation of the Son, no cross, no resurrection, and no promise of heaven. Well, that's a pretty important covenant then. We need to find out about this. The covenant of redemption is unique for at least two other reasons. First, it was made between the persons of the Trinity and not, as in most biblical covenants, between God and humans. You say, well, where do you see a covenant made between the persons of the Trinity? Okay. Don't worry, he's got some texts for you. How about Psalm 40? Okay. Psalm 40. Verses 6 to 8. Psalm of David. Verse 6, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. And your law is within my heart. That's from Hebrews 10. And uh, do you see any covenant in the Trinity there? Now, in Hebrews 10, that is applied, that, that I do, in the scroll of the book is written to me, I delight to, to uh, do your will. That is ascribed to Christ. Okay? A body you have prepared for me. Okay? So what it's saying in Hebrews is that before the foundation of the world, God provided a, if you like, a body for God, for Jesus, if you like to, that was his plan for Jesus to come, the second person of the Trinity, and 
die. And we understand that. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Do you read about a covenant? Do you read about an overarching covenant that's, that's uh, going to interpret the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant and so on? No. Uh, in fact, he gives, he gives uh, Psalm 110. You can go and look at it if you want. You won't find a covenant before creation between the persons of the Trinity. Uh, Isaiah 53, you all know that passage. There's no covenant in there. Uh, he talks about different passages in Ephesians uh, 1, verses 3 to 14. You won't find any, you, you, any covenant in there, any pre-creation um, covenant. You won't find it anywhere in the Bible, folks, because it's not there. There is no covenant of redemption in the Bible. They've, what they've done is that they've taken these passages and they have deduced a covenant. A covenant that is made between the three persons of the Trinity. The Father sends the Son into the world. The Son says, yes, I will obey. I will die on the cross for the elect, your people. And the Holy Spirit says, yes, I will agree I will covenant in order to apply the merits of Christ to the elect. That's what the covenant of redemption is all about. The trouble is you don't read about it anywhere in the Bible. All you read about is that Christ is the Lamb of God from the foundation of the world. Okay? The body was prepared for Christ by God. Well, that doesn't mean there was a covenant. That just means God knew what he was doing ahead of time. So here's the covenant of redemption. There is a problem here, okay, which, again, I've been studying covenants for years. That probably makes me very strange. I understand. Who does that? Nobody, well, very few people do it. But I've been reading in liberal works and in evangelical works and nobody asks the basic question about a covenant. Why do you need them? What do they do? What are they for? Look, if I'm, if I'm God the Father, okay, and, uh, Dale, you're God the Son, okay, I know we've got it inverted, no, it doesn't matter because we're both the same age, you know, in, in, uh, in the Trinity, okay, we're both the same age, we're co-eternal, so on. So, if I'm God the Father and I'm speaking to you, God the Son, isn't my word good enough? Why do I have to enter into a covenant to you, with you? Why do I have to take an oath, or you have to take an oath to obey a covenant with me? I mean, you say yes, don't you? Why do you need a covenant? Why do we need covenants? Or, we don't have covenants so much nowadays. Why do we need contracts? I mean, why don't we just say, you know, my word's my bond, you can trust me. Just, you know, deposit the uh, $500,000 or whatever it is into the bank and I'll give you the keys to my house next week. Why do we need covenants? Because we have a tendency 
not to be trustworthy. That's why. Okay? Sin. If there was no sin, you wouldn't need covenants. Is there any sin back here? So why do you need a covenant? You don't need a covenant, a, a solemn oath taken by the three persons of the truth. Yes, we will do this, you know. Normally my word is good enough, but in this case, we'll just, you know, underline it with something. That's ridiculous when you're talking about God. God does not need to make covenants with himself. The persons of the Trinity do not need to enter into a covenant to do anything. They are completely on the same page (laughs) about everything. Okay? It's just dumb. But God does make covenants, folks. But who does he make covenants with? Us. Why does he make covenants with us? We're sinners. So why does God, who is sinless, make covenants with sinners? What's, what's a good reason that he would bind himself to an oath for us? So that actually, it's, it's real simple. Because we have a tendency not to believe him. So that he will believe, we will believe him. God made a covenant with us to do something. So we can believe he's going to do something. He will not bring a flood upon the earth again. He made a covenant not to do it. You can absolutely guarantee it, folks. And he could have just said, look, I'm not going to do it again. That would have been good enough. But maybe not for us. See, when you're entering into people who have a tendency to doubt, God confirms it. Hebrews chapter 6. If you want to see Hebrews chapter 6, he talks about God confirming his word by an oath. Okay? Alright. So there's the covenant of redemption. In the covenant of redemption, okay, because it's a covenant of redemption and not everybody is saved, it has to be, when we get into time, okay, it has to be all about um, saving the elect. Those who God has marked out to be saved. Alright? So this covenant of redemption, when it enters time, is all about the elect. It's not about the non-elect. You're seeing some... Seeing some uh, Calvinistic soteriology here. Okay? Now, I'm not on soteriology. Okay? And there are better ways to approach Calvinistic views than this. But this certainly feeds into it. Okay? Now, this is outside of time. But we have Adam in the garden. And he's, he hasn't sinned. And everything's hunky-dory. But did you know he was under a covenant? No, I know you haven't read about it, okay? But he was, look. It's called the covenant of works. So we'll stick that up here, okay? We have Adam and Eden. So we have Eden here. Adam and Eve. And they are under 
a covenant of works. That's what they call it. The covenant of works is described in this book. Oh, oh, I've got to read this. Page 39. So the covenant of redemption and the other covenants, they say this. Although some might be concerned that the doctrine of the covenant of redemption is speculative in nature, it actually guards us against speculation. Talk about doublespeak. That's almost politi- you know, politicians talk like that, you know. I'm not saying these guys are disingenuous, they're not. All I'm saying is, it's like, you might think it's pretty obvious that this is speculative. But when you really think about it, this guards us from speculation. Alright? Yeah, right. We'll see if it does. So here's another thing that's supposed to be in the Bible, another overarching covenant, the covenant of works, which is subtitled here, Failure in Paradise. And they write that, this here, sorry. Um, They say, there are four aspects of the definition of the covenant of works that are helpful for us to flesh out a bit. First, God is the one who made the covenant and he did so at creation. Do you read, when you read in Genesis, the first early chapters, you read God making a covenant? For Adam and Eve to be made in the image of God is for them to be in covenant with God. At creation, God commits himself to his creation to sustain them and to and be God to them. So also, being created in the image of God of necessity obligates Adam, and Adam to God. In Genesis 1.26, God fashions male and female in his image so that they may have dominion, which is an obligation. Well, yeah, fair enough, it is an obligation. God's act of of creation generates a relationship with implicit obligations, namely to imitate God. God's covenantal commitment to his human creations then is evident in Genesis 1, even before the narrower command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This prohibition focuses the covenant relationship on a specific test, but the covenant is bigger than this one command. Hold on a minute. Yes, there's a relationship. Yes, there are obligations. But every time there's a relationship, does there have to be a covenant? Every time there are obligations? Look, I've got kids. I've got a relationship with them. When I tell them to do something, okay, I don't say, here, let's swear an oath to do it. Let's make a covenant to do it. You don't need to make a covenant every time somebody's under, you have a relationship and somebody's put under obligation to do something. That's ridiculous. And in Eden, you definitely don't need it. Second, the promise of life everlasting is based on Adam's obedience. Huh? Where? Where? There's no... Look, first of all, you don't read about a promise of life everlasting in Genesis chapter 2. I'm not saying that there wasn't. I'm just saying that you don't read about it. Secondly, they were told not to eat of a certain tree. They can eat of any other. That's a prohibition, not to do something. It's not covenant. 
You can tell somebody, hey, don't touch my car, can't you? Do you need, do they feel themselves under covenant to do that? Not to touch your, of course not. Yeah, this is just, honestly, when you think about it, this is just dumb. Unless, of course, you've got another assumption that's governing the, the way that you're reading the Bible. But look what he's just said. The promise of everlasting life is based on Adam's obedience. What's your promise of everlasting life based on? Jesus' obedience. It's not by works, but by faith, isn't it? Um, They say here, his works were the means of obtaining the promise. What? Salvation by works? Yes, folks. Salvation by works. Where am I going? Um, Salvation by works. Um, Where did I, did I put it here? I think I... In, in uh, this book, which is the distinctiveness of Baptist covenant theology, because there's slight dist- uh, differences uh, between them. Okay, uh, why did I put it? I should have. In in this book, which is by Pascal Deneau, uh he says very clearly when it comes to the covenant of works that salvation was by works for Adam in the garden. Okay, let's see if I can find it really quickly here. Uh, page 27. Let's see if I can find it. I should have, I thought I'd, I'd underlined it, but maybe I didn't. Here, page 28. Under the covenant of works, eternal life cannot be given freely. It must be earned. Page 28. Okay? They believe in two ways. Now, they're always saying that dispensationalists believe in two ways of salvation, which they don't. Okay? Dispensationalists always believed, always have believed, that salvation is by grace through faith in every dispensation. Okay? Sometimes, like Schofield, they haven't worded it very well, but they've always believed that. But here... Straight from the horse's mouth, in Eden, there's a different way of salvation. Works. I didn't say it, they did. Okay? Uh, Do you read about this in the Bible? No, you don't. No, you don't. Um... They also say this, page 44, a common objection to this idea is the question of how Adam's work could merit anything from God. Listen to the answer. Surely a human being could never earn something from God so that God owed it to him. But this objection misses the fact that God is sovereign to set the terms. He created and called it good. So also he is free to assign the value of goods. The exchange rate is in his hands. Man will earn from God what God says he will earn. Yeah, you see this in Reformed theology a lot. Okay? It is what's called nominalism in philosophy. Nominalism. And I'm not going to go into a big thing about it, but nominalism is basically, if God says it is good, doesn't matter if it's good or not, it's, it's good. Okay? You find it in Islamic theology. Okay? 
In other words, a thing isn't good on the basis of it actually intrinsically being good. It's good because God calls it good. All right? So, if God just on a whim decides that, well, I'm going to decide that this person can earn their salvation. I know you can't really earn your salvation, but I'm going to decide that he can. (laughs) Do you see? It's just capricious. Do you see that? It's it's called voluntarism or nominalism. It's all right, you can forget the terms. All I'm saying is that that is what often this theology, when you really push the buttons and you get to it, often it lapses into this nominalism. Well, God can just do it. No, he can't. Because he's not a nominalist God. He always acts within his nature. Look, God is not going to give glory to somebody else. He's not going to put be in the debt of anybody else. And furthermore, just to remind you, you don't find this in the Bible. So there's no reason to think it's there. In the first place, there's no reason to even talk this way. Because it's not in the Bible, or is it? Because there are some proof texts that they use. And by the way, the definition of the covenant of works in page 48 is this. Uh, God's commitment to give Adam and his posterity in him eternal life for obedience or eternal death for disobedience. Well, did he disobey? Okay. So I guess he's he's in hell then now. Because he broke that covenant. I know there's going to be another covenant in a minute. But um, this is an overarching covenant, they, they say. Um, they go to the whole narrative of Genesis 2 and 3, you know. They say it's a covenantal kind of narrative in its structure. No, it isn't. It has things that covenants have in there, but, I mean, stories have these things in them. It doesn't mean that they are all covenantal. You know, they have people disobeying and they have people saying, don't do that. Doesn't mean, and they have relationships, doesn't mean it's covenantal. And they say this. Remember the first, were you all here for the first one? When I talked about the cosmic temple? Remember the cosmic temple? Here's cosmic temple teaching, verse, uh, page 52. Adam's priestly identity further reveals how he is in covenant with God. By analogy, God's promise to Aaron that the priesthood would remain always in his lineage is called a covenant, Numbers 25. That's not a promise to Aaron, that's a promise to Phinehas. Moreover, the righteous purity required of priests fits that which is required of Adam to remain in God's presence forever. So he's reading the Bible backwards. Positive righteousness is demanded for Adam to remain a priest of the paradise sanctuary in, of God's presence. What? Ezekiel makes this garden temple imagery and the required righteousness quite explicit in Ezekiel 28, 11-19 in his lamentation for Tyre. Here the prophet compares the king of Tyre to Adam in Eden. in order to contrast Tyre's beauty with its wickedness. 
Ezekiel calls Tyre Eden and the Garden of God. Ezekiel 28.13. No, he doesn't. You can read it for yourself. God installed the king of Tyre on the holy mountain of God. Verse 14. And he created him blameless. Verse 15. The jewels listed in verse 13 largely match the jewels of the high priest's breastplate of judgment in Exodus 28, which symbolize righteousness. This is an accurate comparison to Adam, a righteous priest installed in the temple garden of God, and on it goes and on it goes. And as I said before, according to Ezekiel 28, God's talking to a cherub, an anointed cherub who covers, who was in the garden of God in Eden. And fell. Okay? I think that's Satan. He thinks it's Adam. And Adam was a priest and he had a breastplate. Remember, I told you this. Adam had priest clothes in the Garden of Eden. I thought he was naked. And if he had priest clothes, when he heard the the voice of God in the garden after he'd sinned, why didn't he just run to the closet and get out his priest clothes instead of getting a bunch of leaves? (laughs) This is crazy, guys. This is nuts. This is not what the Bible teaches. This is somebody reading into it. By the way, and as I said before, but but I I like this, so we'll just, we'll repeat it. If a, if Adam was a cherub and he was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, I presume Eve was another cherub, okay? So there are two cherubs being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. God guards the Garden of Eden with cherubs. Cherubim. So where do they come from? More human beings? Do you see? It's silly. It's silly. Where do these other human beings come from? God decided to create some more human beings? Or maybe the cherubs this time that guard the cherubs that have just been thrown out are different cherubs. There actually really are cherubs. It's insane. Of course Ezekiel's talking about a real cherub and he's not talking about... I mean, the cherubs in Ezekiel are not human beings. All right. So, a covenant of works. It gets broken, of course. Okay? But don't worry, because there's the covenant of grace. All right. So, here we are. The covenant of grace. Now, the covenant of grace, which is after Eden, okay? The covenant of grace we'll just put down here in big letters because it envelops everything else from now on. Alright? All of this to the new heavens and new earth under the covenant of grace. Okay? What is the covenant of grace? The covenant of grace, page 58, is the one covenant through which all believers are saved. It began in Genesis 3.15 with God's promise to send a saviour and runs throughout redemptive history until Christ's second coming. Now, I'm going to say that again and you need to 
You need to listen carefully. The covenant of grace is the one covenant through which all believers are saved. It began in Genesis 3.15 with God's promise to send a saviour and runs throughout redemptive history until Christ's second coming. That means everybody who is saved is under the covenant of grace according to this system. What did I say was one of the the distinguishing features of dispensational theology? The separation of Israel and the church, because Israel has specific covenants and promises given to it, which mean what they say, and which will come to realization uh, when the new covenant is made with them through Jesus Christ in the future. Okay? But... If everybody's under the covenant of grace, then there is no Israel church, do you see? There's no Israel church dichotomy anymore. You've got one people of God from Genesis 3.15 all the way through. So where in the Bible is the covenant of grace? I don't know either. You never come across it. And remember, these three covenants, okay, these are the big covenants that overarch everything else. And the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, they're subsets of these covenants. But hold on, the Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting covenant given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, giving them land and a posterity. And the Davidic covenant says that that Israel will have a king in a land. Doesn't it? But if that's true, those covenants mean what they say, how can the covenant of grace blot that out and say there's just one blob, one people of God? That would have to mean that those covenants actually won't come through on the nation of Israel. Do you see? Which is what they teach. Which is why they go into the New Testament, the Old Testament and they spiritualize those covenants given to Israel. Because they've already got this covenantal structure that's, that's, uh, going to decide how they're going to interpret the Bible. I've nearly done. Just stick with it. He says this, The covenant of grace is the historical outworking of God's eternal plan of salvation in the covenant of redemption. Oh, I see. So, this is this, just in time. Do you see? But, we didn't see any of this, did we? So, this isn't on a good footing if we can't find this. If this is the covenant of redemption in time, and there's no covenant of redemption in the Bible, then it, this, the, this one's track record isn't going to be that great either, is it? The covenant of grace is essentially... The application to sinners of the benefits earned by Christ through his fulfillment of the covenant of redemption. 
So it's a really nice, compact, logical system. The only it's got one big flaw. You don't find it anywhere in the Bible. It's completely deductive. Now, you might want to know what, just to, to, to know a, a difference between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So here it is. In the covenant of works, the parties are God and Adam. In the covenant of grace, the parties are God and believers and their children. Uh, when I finish this, I'm going to ask you what this means. Okay? As far as the time made, covenant of works made in Eden, covenant of grace made outside of Eden. Condition, covenant of works, perfect obedience, salvation by works. Covenant of, covenant of grace, faith in Christ, the one who was perfectly obedient. Okay, that's great, apart from, no, we didn't believe in Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Neither did Abraham. Neither did anybody in the Old Testament. Okay? They knew that a promised Redeemer was coming, but they didn't know who he was. They didn't know how he would die. They didn't know he would rise from the dead. There wasn't much to go on, just that God's going to send a Redeemer. The mediator, no mediator in the covenant of works. Christ is the mediator of the covenant of grace. And then the promise, glorified life according to the covenant of works, though you don't see that anywhere in the Bible, and justification and glorified life in the covenant of grace. Contrary to the teachings of classical dispensationalism, the Bible does not teach two plans of salvation for two peoples of God that is Israel and the church, but rather one plan of salvation for one people of God through redemption history. Just like I just told you, you see? If there's one people of God, then that means all of the promises to national Israel must be spiritualized. And, please catch this, the focus here is on the first coming of Christ and on the cross, Okay? Here's a definition. The definition of the covenant of grace as the covenant between God and believers with their children in which he promises salvation through faith in Christ who merited their salvation by his obedience in the covenant of redemption. Um, that means the focus for the covenant of redemption, okay, it's all about the first coming of Christ. So as we saw last week, all of those prophecies in the Old Testament okay, are going to be interpreted around the first coming of Christ. Obviously, in order to fit into the first coming of Christ interpretation, they have to be inter- spiritualized. They have to be reinterpreted, don't they? Because they just don't fit. Okay, he has, Jesus has to be on David's throne raising, uh, you know, um, reigning from heaven, for example. That's not what these prophecies prophesy, but that it must mean that over the church, which is the one people of God. And also the church can't really start if there's one covenant of grace, okay? One people of God, you can't 
uh, you can't have a people in the Old Testament and another people in the New Testament. You have to have one people, that, which means that the church stretches all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Which is a big problem, actually, because according to Romans chapter 6 and many other passages, well, just think about the gospel passage in 1 Corinthians 15. What do you have to believe in order to be in the church? Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You have to believe that. Well, if you have to believe he rose again, doesn't he have to rise before the church can be instantiated? Because you have to believe something that happened before the church, yes? That means that the church happened after the resurrection, which the church is supposed to believe in. So the church can't be before the resurrection. In fact, we're tied to his resurrection. Romans 6. Okay, we're raised in newness of life. So if that's the case, then, again, we have a problem. The covenant of grace saying that there must be a church back here in the Old Testament is contradicting a very clear teaching in the Bible. So here's, how about this? Get rid of the covenant of grace and read the Bible for what it actually says. Get rid of this. Get rid of this nonsense. You know, they say here that, that, uh, dispensationalists believed in two ways of salvation for two peoples, which they didn't, by the way. But they certainly believe in two ways of salvation. I read it to you from two of their works. Um, certain things happened, uh, as far as the Bible's teaching on this. Here's one of them. God terminated the sinful covenant between Satan and the woman. (laughs) Did you know there was a covenant between the devil and Eve? According to this, page 61, there was. And God terminated it with the covenant of grace. Do you read any of this in the Bible? How can there be a covenant with Satan? Where did he get that from? Well, there's a relationship, isn't there? I mean, the way that he puts it here is that that uh, Satan manages to get the woman to enter into league with himself. See the slippery language? No, she didn't enter into league with him. She just believed him. Or doubted God, actually. So, anyway, on and on it goes. Uh, we could go a lot further into this. How does this work out as far as the last times are concerned? Here's uh, Kim Riddlebarger, who uh, he puts his endorsement on this book, A Case for Our Millennialism. And remember, our millennialism teaches that uh, the church is in the millennium now. There's no future millennium, but we're in the millennium now. Okay, and uh, he writes here, let me just get the, I did dog ear it. <clears throat> uh, let's see. 
that's not the one I wanted. Oh, here. Okay. Scholars in the Reformed tradition insist upon the progressive unfolding of redemptive history as progressive stages of the covenant of grace. Dispensationalists see each period of history as a separate epoch, each with distinctive or different economies or administrations, dispensations. The Reformed objection is that dispensationalism disrupts the unity of the covenant of grace. That's page 251, end note 2. Well, I don't care about disrupting the unity of the covenant of grace because I don't find it anywhere in the Bible. And the unity of the covenant of grace is not what the Bible teaches. It's, an, it's, it's been imposed on the Bible. And then the Bible is going to be read through the lenses of the covenant of grace. Which teaches, remember, not just that the covenant of grace is made with believers, all believers, so they're all in the church, but also made with their children. Why do they teach that? They teach that, folks, or at least the Presbyterians and Anglicans and so on, they teach that because just as uh, with Abraham... The Abrahamic covenant is made with Abraham and his descendants, his posterity. So the covenant of grace, because the Abrahamic covenant, they say, is like uh, an instance, a subset of the covenant of grace. So the covenant of grace must be made with the elect and with the children. All right, well, if there's a covenant, what's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17? What's the token of the covenant? The Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. Circumcision. That's the token of the covenant. Well, circumcision is not the token of the covenant in the New Testament because Paul writes very, very harshly against that, doesn't he? In Galatians and so on, Philippians 3. So if that's the case, uh, what's the token of the covenant in of the covenant of grace now, what do you think it might be? For, for children, for very small children, for infants. Baptism. Sprinkling. Sprinkling. Because circumcision was when they were eight days old. Okay? So, so it's sprinkling. That's where they get it from. There has to be a token of the covenant of grace if it's made also with the children of the elect, do you see, of believers, which means there has to be a token for it. Hence, you're sprinkling unbelievers. Unless you're a Baptist covenant theologian, like this guy is, okay, and Baptists are going to have none of that because they believe that you can't have unregenerate people in the church. Okay? You have to have, you only baptize regenerate people. People who actually believed. So they have a different view of the church, which means that they don't go back to the Abrahamic covenant and say, and say, well, because Abraham, that's an instance of the covenant of grace, then, you know, there must be a token for infants and so on. Nowadays, they say, no, the church 
has is only for believers. Okay? And only the believers get baptized and only the believers are in the covenant of grace. So that's a big difference between the, the two. When it comes to the end times, we, there's no point in having a tribulation, really. I mean, some of them might say for a kind of tribulation. Some of them say where well, the church goes through the tribulation. Some of them might go that way. More premillennial ones will. But there's no real point for the tribulation. In fact, many are millennialists, like Greg Beale and so on, say we're in the tribulation now. As well as the millennium. <laughs> we're in both. <laughs> um, but... Um, because you can, you can make, you know, they're wax noses. You can do what you want with them, you see. And so, uh, they really don't have, because the covenant of grace kind of moves all the way up to the end, we might as well end the, the whole shooting match and have a new heavens and a new earth when Jesus comes back. It doesn't make any sense to have a literal millennial kingdom on earth. Okay, not to a lot of these guys. And they'll say, so, you know, if we spiritualize all this stuff, we might as well spiritualize the millennium as well. Say that the church, since the church is the people of God, we're in the millennium now. And Bob's your uncle. I mean, there's no, there's no need for pre-tribulation rapture. There's no need for a tribulation or a literal antichrist. The Pope's the antichrist or the system of the Catholic Church or the, the anti-Christian politics is the Antichrist, not a literal person, and just go with it. It's a coherent system. It has an internal logic. It has a goal. It has its own eschatology that makes sense. The trouble is you don't find it in the Bible. So that's covenant theology, basically. Okay, it is basic. And if a covenant theology was theologian was here, okay, um, they might be getting red or hot under the collar and steam coming. I don't know, but honestly, I haven't misrepresented them. That's what they teach, and that's why they go back into because they read the Bible based on the cross. So they read the Old Testament based on the cross, which means they go to the New Testament first, they have their interpretation of the New Testament based on this stuff, and then they go back into the Old Testament and reinterpret the Old Testament based on their interpretation of the New Testament. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's the only one they take literally. That's a joke. (laughs) They actually do take literally the first coming prophecies, it's just the second coming prophecies that they don't take literally um, apart from the fact that Jesus is coming back again. All right. I hope that that has clarified. I know it's been hard work, but I hope that that has clarified why certain people interpret the Bible differently. Okay? Why uh, certain people don't believe, in fact, vehemently don't believe sometimes, that there is a future for Ethnic Israel, national Israel. There's no, there's no room for it in covenant theology. That's why. Could you tell us more about who these people are? 
I mean, you mentioned a couple of them. The Anglicans, perhaps the Presbyterians. Anglicans, Presbyterians, Reformed Baptists. Reformed Baptists, Calvinistic Baptists, under the uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession. Um, Dutch Reformed, uh, uh, Confessional Congregationalists who were under the Savoy Declaration. Okay, so, um, yeah, all of those. So, so a lot of denominations. So if you, you know, R.C. Sproul, I mean, think about uh, Alistair Begg, people like this that you may have heard of. Um, many of the of the movers and shakers, Tim Keller and so on, the, they all believe this stuff. Yeah, they're all covenant theologians. Okay, John MacArthur is the only one who's not, really, who's a big name that you may have heard of. John MacArthur is a dispensationalist. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, he's, yeah... He's a dispensationalist, yeah. I don't really take Chuck Swindoll as seriously as these other guys because I don't think he's a scholar. John Piper is one of these. He's a premillennialist, but he's a covenant theologian. Well, he's Church of Christ, so he's not even evangelical. <clears throat> um, yeah. Yes. Oh, that's a good question. Yes and no. <clears throat> Which doesn't help. <clears throat> you see, what covenant theologians do, they have to have a definition of covenant that's wide enough and broad brush enough to slap anywhere they want to slap it. Okay, you you saw them. You know, they slap it on Genesis two. They slap it on Genesis three. They even slap it on uh, Eve's relationship with the serpent. I mean, this is a broad brush definition of covenant. Okay, uh, so they give a definition of covenant at the beginning of their book, which isn't bad. Um, a covenant is a formal agreement that creates a relationship with legal aspects. Page eleven. The problem is that, that you can just use that any way you choose to use it. But the covenant is actually something that is... Uh, uh, my, my basic definition of a, of a biblical covenant is that it is a, uh, an agreement that is, is made between two parties about something important which is sealed by an oath. Okay? And if you, I mean, there's a bit more too, I widen that definition a, a bit, but if you have that, then the oath is the most important thing. Where you can't find an oath, you can't find a covenant. Because you can't be sure a covenant was made. Genesis chapter 17 Okay, it's very important when it comes to this because in Genesis 17 we see that Abraham is pleading for Ishmael and he says, well, can't, you know, can't he inherit the promises? And God says, no. No. In Isaac. Okay? Isaac. I make my covenant with Isaac. So he's not going to make his covenant with Ishmael. He's going to make the covenant with Isaac. And then he promises a bunch of stuff to Ishmael. 
But Ishmael's not under covenant. Which means you don't have to be under covenant to get stuff from God. Do you see? A covenant is a very specific thing. And where you don't see it, you have no business saying there is one. Where there is, pay attention to it and don't slap one of these things over the top of it so you're going to not let it say what it actually says. Okay? All right. Thank you very much for your attention. I hope there's a little eye-opening tonight. Think about it.